Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Today, we're talking about an unusual topic, not criminal law, but lawyers as criminals. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law at the Cutting Edge of Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Our guest today knows a great deal about this topic, having served as chief counsel to the Attorney Disciplinary Committee for the First Department in Manhattan and the Bronx. Hal Lieberman, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you. For many people, the first question that comes to mind is, with all this legal training, shouldn't lawyers know better? Sure they should, but one could say that about Citizens generally, even without legal training, people understand that there are laws that they have to abide by, and um, lawyers are no different in that regard. And sometimes people make bad mistakes of judgment, and sometimes people are in trouble in one way or another and engage in conduct that they shouldn't engage in. So I don't know whether lawyers are that much different from other people in that respect. But perhaps one distinction may be when it comes to the actual knowledge of what they're doing. Are courts treating lawyers differently when they break the law because of that? Well, first of all, there's the old adage, ignorance of the law is no excuse. So even if you're not a trained lawyer, um, you can't break the law. But with lawyers, it's a little bit different. You're right in the sense that uh, we are trained. But it's more than just the training. We have special obligations to the courts and to the public as officers of the court. So we have to be purer than the driven snow in that sense, and we can't break the law just because it's contrary to our ethical obligations to the, to the bar and the public. Maybe we can talk a little bit about those rules that apply just to lawyers. Well, there are rules that apply just to lawyers. They've been written and, and, and adopted by the bar across the country, and they're known as the uh, rules of professional conduct, and they are the rules of ethics. One of those rules that relates to the topic you're talking about says that a lawyer shall not engage in any criminal or illegal conduct that reflects adversely on the lawyer's fitness to practice. That's a rule of ethics. So when it says that they can't engage in breaking the law if it reflects badly on their ability to practice, that's not any breaking of the law. No. um, One can break the law by uh, getting a speeding ticket, which is not a good thing, but doesn't necessarily reflect adversely on a lawyer's fitness to be a lawyer. Um, But there are various kinds of crimes that certainly could and do reflect adversely. So there is a distinction and there's discretion built into the rule which gives the regulatory agencies the ability to determine whether somebody who's a lawyer did engage in conduct that would necessarily reflect on their ability to practice or should should reflect on it. To get a baseline, why don't we take a look at some crimes that would would clearly fall within this this category? Sure. I mean, in New York, uh, anybody who's convicted of a felony who's a lawyer is going to be automatically disbarred if it's a New York felony. Um, Just by definition, being convicted of a felony is a serious matter, no matter what the felony. So even if it's a felony for reckless driving? It's a felony that's even unrelated completely to the practice of law. If it's a felony, that's enough. For, to cause a lawyer to lose his or her license. If a lawyer is convicted of a lesser crime, a misdemeanor, uh, then it depends on the nature of the misdemeanor before a determination can be made as to whether it constitutes the kind of crime that should result in loss of license or some other public form of discipline, or private discipline for that matter. So there is that second category of so-called what we call serious crimes. 
within that second category, if it's a misdemeanor, are these the type of crimes that would show dishonesty? They could. Um, for example, forgery. Um, there, there's felony forgery and there's misdemeanor forgery, depending on the state of mind and other factors. There are other crimes which are divided into categories of felonies and misdemeanors. And uh, I might also add that anything that would be a felony in another jurisdiction that um, might not be a felony in New York State would constitute a, by definition, of serious crime and would trigger a disciplinary proceeding. Uh, so, for example, some states in the country don't have the same kinds of laws that we do, or in the federal uh, system, federal tax violations would not be, even if they were felony in the federal courts, would be serious crimes in New York State. So once the disciplinary process is underway, we're talking usually after the criminal process. Oh, always. I mean, you know, it would only be triggered by a conviction. It wouldn't be triggered by an arrest, and it certainly wouldn't be triggered by um, uh, an a criminal investigation. It would only be triggered if a lawyer either pled guilty to or was found guilty of crime. And then what happens is there's an obligation on the part of the lawyer to self-report any conviction of a felony or a misdemeanor to the authorities. And failure to self-report is in and of itself an ethical violation. So um, that, that Which triggers. violation is that? It's a violation of the rules of, of, of procedure of, of professional conduct so that um, the way it would be described in a set of charges would be a lawyer's uh, conduct that involves uh, conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice, namely failing to cooperate with the disciplinary authorities by self-reporting. So does that obligation extend to a conviction that took place, for example, out of state? Yes. How about out of country? That's a good question. Um, and. I'm not sure I know the answer to that because it hasn't really come up in my practice, but I suspect that depending on whether the crime out of country was a, a crime in New York or a crime in the jurisdiction where the lawyer practices, it might well be reportable, but it really would depend. For example, uh, some obviously heinous crimes like murder or um, you know, fraud in an international context which could very well uh, be perceived as reflecting adversely on that lawyer's fitness to practice here. So once the lawyer self-reports, that starts the wheels turning. What are the next steps? The next steps would be notification back to the lawyer from the disciplinary authority or regulatory authority that an investigation is being commenced, giving the lawyer an opportunity to respond. Now, if the conviction was of a felony, that that's deemed in New York State at least, an automatic disbarment. So there's no discretion. So there's no discretion and the notice that the lawyer would get would essentially be a notice from the, thor from the disciplinary authority uh, saying you are, you know, here, here is the um, fact of your conviction and you are, um, you know, we are asking the court to automatically disbar you. So what do you say when you're in the position where you have to represent a lawyer who's already been convicted of a felony? Good question. There's very little uh, that one can say in response to an automatic felony disbarment proceeding other than uh, to express uh, regret and apologies and uh, ask that the court um, understand that uh, this will never happen again. So we're talking about disbarment. That word sounds permanent, but what does it actually mean? Well, it is permanent in a number of jurisdictions, but in New York, by statute, it's 
means seven years of, of suspension and then an application for reinstatement, which in and of itself is a substantial process. So it's seven years you're off, you're off the team. Seven years that you are out of the law practice, you must file an affidavit of compliance showing that you have notified all of your clients, courts, opposing counsel that you are no longer a lawyer and you are effectively on the shelf for that period of time. You can't even, in theory, go near a law office. Some people do, in fact, attempt to become paralegals and courts have taken different positions on that issue, but bottom line is that um, you're not to hold yourself out as a lawyer or act in a legal capacity during that seven-year period. And if you want to come back, you'd, you'd better abide by that. Yes, uh, because one of the issues on reinstatement will be whether you have, in fact, obeyed to the letter the, um, the order of the court uh, suspending or disbarring you. So when it comes to the types of crimes that lawyers have committed that have gotten them disbarred, the array is rather broad. It runs a gamut. It really runs the gamut. There are cases of lawyers who have committed um, assaultive felonies and, you know, one or two cases of murder. Um, there are cases of lawyers, legion of, of cases where lawyers have committed bank fraud or mortgage fraud or um, some or insurance fraud and have been convicted of felonies and have been disbarred as a result of that. There's even been cases of uh, animal cruelty. There have been cases of animal cruelty. Uh, I think I mentioned during the break uh, the famous case of the lawyer in Maryland who, in the midst of a bitter divorce, uh, put his then wife's cat in the microwave and killed the cat. So out of spite. Out of spite. Not a pretty picture. So, you know, you can't even make, make this stuff up. When it comes to some of the crimes that you mentioned, like murder or other serious felonies, the time that a, an attorney would be disbarred would pale in comparison, perhaps, with the time they may serve behind bars. But are there certain crimes that would put a lawyer in such a bad light that seven years might not be enough? Yes, there are. And, and that's a very good question because one of the factors in reinstatement, in fact, is the nature of the crime itself. And there are some crimes that are so severe that even if the statute says seven years, it's very unlikely that the courts are going to allow the lawyer to come back in seven years or 10 years or 20 years. And it just depends. In any criminal matter, uh, the defendant has the ability to plead not guilty. When it comes to a lawyer who's been convicted of a crime, is maintaining one's innocence a bar to reentry? Oh, absolutely. Um, once you're convicted, first of all, you, you lose your Fifth Amendment rights because there's no criminal jeopardy, so you, you can't assert the Fifth Amendment. But, but asserting innocence in a criminal conviction context is a clear loser in terms of both the, the law and the discretion to readmit somebody. So what does that say to someone who's wrongfully convicted? What that says to somebody who's wrongfully convicted is that they can uh, assert their appellate rights and seek a reversal in the higher courts. But in, until such time as the, their conviction is reversed, they are convicted and they cannot claim to be innocent in the sense that they can avoid uh, the disciplinary consequences of that. So, for example, there's a famous case in New York involving the former Attorney General of the United States, John Mitchell who was, during the Watergate period, um, and subsequent to that, uh, convicted of a felony. I don't recall exactly what felony it was, but it obviously had to do with obstruction of justice, among other things, federal felony, which had a state analog. 
and Mitchell was subsequently disbarred in New York State automatically and claimed that because he was appealing his conviction, he should not be disbarred until his conviction was final. And the New York Court of Appeals emphatically said, no, that's not the case. In New York, you are disbarred, and if, you are, if your conviction is reversed, then you can come back. But, until but even then, it's not automatic. Yes, it would be automatic. If his conviction was reversed, he would no longer be convicted of a felony, and he would not be suspended you know, or disbarred. But, but until that time, um, you are disbarred. So, you know, of course, that appeal could take several years, and he didn't want to have that stigma during the appellate period, but that's not the law. When we're talking about a crime, sometimes there are victims involved. Do those victims have a say in the disciplinary process? Actually, I would disagree with the premise of your question. I think when you're talking about crimes, there are always victims. Um, the victims may be more amorphous. Uh, for example, if you commit um, a speeding offense, um, it's, there's no victim necessarily if there's no accident, but there's the potential for an accident, and there's certainly the idea of maintaining law and order. So the public, in a sense, is violated by that. It's a kind of a more uh, abstract concept. But in terms of actual victims, people who have lost money or who have been injured by criminal conduct, those things are taken into consideration not only during the process of discipline, but also certainly on reinstatement. And no lawyer is going to be allowed to come back into practice of law if there has been no effort made to make restitution for property damage, for example, or to um, make some amends for uh, per, you know, injury to another person. And some crimes can't be compensated by anything because um, they, you know, they may have resulted in permanent bodily injury or death. So it depends on the circumstances. But certainly the victimization of somebody is, is, is a relevant concern. And in fact, when a lawyer applies for reinstatement, a lawyer has to notify the something called the Lawyers Fund for Client Protection, which is a statewide organization in New York, of the application. And the Lawyers Fund will indicate whether restitution has been made if there's money involved in the original crime. Maybe we could talk about some examples of serious crimes where lawyers have been involved. Lawyers have been caught up in uh, tapes, uh, wiretaps of um, uh, discussions with um, crime, organized crime figures. So that has, that has occurred from time to time. And there was a rather well-known case of a lawyer, I think it was, his name was Bruce Cutler, who was uh, suspended for six months for some conduct involving um, organized crime a number of years ago. Only six months? Yes, only six months because it didn't involve actual involvement in the conspiracy to commit crimes, but it was uh, in contempt of court for various aspects of his conduct in, in, in relationship to the investigation. But there were wiretaps that certainly suggested that he, at the time, had uh, engaged in conversations that were not uh, appropriate for a lawyer. Sometimes lawyers commit crimes in defense or in their efforts to help their clients. Where is the line between criminal advice and crime itself? It's not always easy to um, describe it, but there, there's a black letter rule of professional conduct which tries to give some guidance, which basically says that a lawyer shall not knowingly aid or assist a client in illegal or fraudulent conduct. Now, what that rule involves is uh, the lawyer knowing what's illegal or fraudulent conduct at the outset and making sure that he or she does not, by client legal advice at the same time, 
aid the client or assist the client in, in, the, in the actual underlying conduct. Maybe for, you can give us an example. For example, uh, if the client um, is looking to avoid prosecution and comes to the lawyer and says, you know, I'd like to know, um, you know, I've, I've, I've been accused of various crimes and I'd like to know which countries do not have extradition treaties with the United States. To the degree that the lawyer would be providing that information, knowing that it's so that the client can avoid or justice, the lawyer would be aiding and assisting in obstruction of justice and uh, engaging in um, um, aiding a fugitive. So the problem there is that while people are entitled to know the law and entitled to know that there are these countries which do or do not have extradition treaties, the clear understanding and purpose of that question is to avoid justice, which would be improper. While it is a crime to help someone uh, avoid justice, why can't the lawyer say, these are the states, the countries where you can, where there's no extradition treaty, but I strongly advise you not to go there and here are the reasons. I suppose a lawyer could do that and I think that that would have to be evaluated in terms of the lawyer's state of mind and intent. If the lawyer's state of mind and intent was really to just say that to protect himself or herself, but at the same time, knowing that this is going to lead to conduct that is going to be uh, illegal, then that's a problem. But if the lawyer is saying that and then strongly urging the client in, in sincere good faith not to flee justice, that's another matter. And I think these are close questions sometimes. The whole notion of intent is very important in the rules of professional conduct just as it is in criminal justice system. For example, uh, it's not appropriate for a lawyer to reveal, knowingly reveal a client's confidences or secrets. But there's this underlying concept of knowingly or intent. And if a lawyer inadvertently or negligently reveals a confidence or secret, well, that's not a good thing, it doesn't violate that rule. So it depends on whether the lawyer knew or should have known that uh, he or she was doing that. We talked about obstruction of justice, which is a crime that can get a little bit tricky when it comes to lawyers advising clients and lawyers assisting in criminal behavior. What happens when lawyers are asked the following question by their clients? How do I engage in this particular activity, illegal activity, without being caught? Well, that's very clear. A lawyer cannot advise a client how to engage in illegal activity without being caught. A lawyer can certainly explain the law to the client and advise the client not to disobey the law. That's the proper thing to do, but never to advise the client how to avoid uh, getting caught for w when the lawyer knows that the conduct is illegal. That would never be improper. The reputation is that lawyers are perhaps more prone to alcoholism and more prone to substance abuse. Is that true? I don't know the statistics or what the studies have shown, but I do know anecdotally that that's uh, not unrealistic to assume. The legal profession is stressful. Uh, many lawyers do have lead high-powered existences and have, like everybody else, family issues and other life issues that cause stress and turn to alcohol or pills or whatever other substance might relax them a little bit. And this happens. And um, sometimes it gets to the point where it interferes with the ability to practice law, and that's a problem. For anyone, abuse of, of drugs, abuse of alcohol is unhealthy. But for lawyers, there's other things at stake. There's the interest of the client involved. Well, sometimes lawyers can abuse alcohol or drugs and actually 
function at a fairly high level. It just depends on the, the lawyer and the situation. But there are many instances where uh, substance abuse has interfered with uh, a lawyer's practice of law and has resulted in harm to clients. And in those cases, something has to be done to protect the public and protect the clients from the lawyers. And at the same time, help the lawyers to uh, get past the addiction. And there are uh, mechanisms in the bar for doing that. There is um, uh, uh, many programs around the country described as lawyers concerned for lawyers, which are support groups and similar to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous groups for specifically lawyers and their peers in the, in the legal profession. Let's get to some of those uh, programs a little bit later, but you mentioned the example of what someone might call a functioning alcoholic or perhaps a functioning substance abuser. If someone is abusing alcohol or abusing drugs, are they involved in some type of behavior that should subject them to discipline? Again, a very interesting question because there's an irony here. Uh, abusing alcohol is not per se illegal or criminal. Uh, it's perfectly legal to buy alcohol and to sit in a bar until 3 in the morning and drink. Uh, it's, not, it's not legal to go out and drive after that, but it's certainly not illegal to sit in a bar. But use, misusing or, or abusing controlled substances uh, or illegal substances is, is a crime, and lawyers can't commit crimes. So it really depends on the circumstances. Uh, actually, alcohol abuse is in some respects considered a mitigating circumstance in lawyer discipline, whereas drug abuse, which is similar in terms of its effect, is considered criminal conduct, depending on the uh, misuse of the drugs. I mean, certainly illegal drugs, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, would be substances that could result in criminal convictions and uh, would be considered very aggravating in a legal disciplinary matter. In other words, using a controlled substance like cocaine, for example, could be grounds for discipline in and of itself. In and of itself not grounds for a um, serious crime or a, a um, felony disbarment or even a criminal, you know, disciplinary criminal proceeding if there was no conviction. But that's conduct that's illegal and not appropriate. And so conceivably the bar and the regulatory authorities would have an interest. The likely result of a non-criminal uh, admission of use of a controlled substance would be to work with that lawyer to uh, uh, avoid addiction and or overcome addiction through a program and it would be done quietly and confidentially. All right, let's take a quick break for the listeners who are here to earn MCLE credit for this course. The code for this interview is 872943. That's 872943. Back to the interview. We talked about the use of the substance itself, but when you're dealing with these types of cases, we're talking about the harm, the harm that is caused. Perhaps you could give an example from your experience where, let's say, alcohol abuse has led to significant harm, both for the lawyer and the clients. Sure. Uh, it's the classic example is neglect, where a lawyer who is abusing alcohol or abusing drugs, for that matter, is unable to function well enough to attend to his client's matters or her client's matters and cases languish. That's a serious problem for clients and for the public and the bar and the courts. Uh, and when cases languish and calls aren't returned and 
matters aren't um, filed in court on time and, and uh, cases uh, get dismissed because lawyers fail to show up in court, serious consequences for clients result. And that's not a good thing for anybody. Missing deadlines, missing the ability to, to make an appeal or the ability to submit a motion. Yeah, that's classic behavior for people who are just not functioning well. By the way, it, it often happens in the absence of, uh, of substance abuse if a lawyer, for example, becomes depressed and um, you know, has a, a mental or emotional uh, health issue that needs, needs addressing. You mentioned that alcoholism, for example, can be seen as a mitigating factor. How does that work? Well, because it's uh, simply recognized by the courts as something that can happen to people and that that may be a solvable problem or something that people can deal with and recover from and that it explains certain kinds of behavior that otherwise wouldn't be explained. And the courts have viewed it, for better or for worse, as a circumstance that could explain or mitigate some of the otherwise bad conduct. I can't necessarily differentiate between that and other kinds of substance abuse, but it's, the fact is that alcohol is legal and certain other drugs are not legal, and maybe that's the distinction. We talked about neglect. One other area that, that comes to mind is, what about with regard to billing? If you're billing for a time spent on a matter when you're perhaps drunk or high on a substance, and your work may not be as effective or as efficient. Is that something that the, the, the disciplinary committee would be involved with? Well, I, I think what you're talking about in a sense is billing fraud or, or, or billing abuse. And uh, I think this goes on from time to time in our profession, regardless of substance abuse. It simply is something that if you have an hourly billing system, some lawyers might unfortunately pad their bills or not be careful about their their, the hours well, I was saying maybe you're, you're billing for one hour, the same as the, as the other hour, but during that hour you're drunk. Well, that would be billing fraud if you're not performing any work and charging the client for that. That certainly wouldn't be appropriate. There's no ambiguity about that. There are certain obligations for lawyers, mm -hmm. obligations to report. Yes. If I see one of my colleagues, a lawyer or a, a, even a prosecutor or a judge, who is abusing uh, drugs or alcohol, what obligations do I have? Under the rules of professional conduct in New York and elsewhere, you have a reporting obligation. Actually, it's in not every jurisdiction, but most jurisdictions, you have a reporting obligation if you have actual knowledge as opposed to suspicion or belief or supposition that somebody who's a lawyer, including judges who are usually lawyers, uh, is engaging in conduct that is violative of their trust and, and would reflect adversely on their trustworthiness or fitness as a lawyer. So it has to be actual knowledge and it has to be serious enough conduct to reflect adversely on their trustworthiness or fitness as a lawyer. In other words, it can't be that somebody made a mistake or somebody inadvertently put a client check in the wrong account or did some minor transgression that would be an ethical violation but isn't serious enough. But if somebody you know has engaged in a lawyer and you have actual knowledge that that lawyer has engaged in fraud or perjury in, in, in a, you know, making a knowingly false statement under oath or has otherwise um, aided or abetted somebody in criminal conduct or has done something else or, or misappropriated funds from a client, you have an absolute obligation as a lawyer to report that under the reporting requirements of the rules. 
And once that reporting has taken place, what are the usual types of disciplinary responses when it comes to abusing, let's say, alcohol, for example? Well, if you've, first of all, you wouldn't necessarily report abusing alcohol. And even if you did report that, that would not be, because of, the, because of the, the fact of the existence of programs, that's actually one of the exceptions to the reporting requirement where a lawyer can um, report another lawyer uh, and have that lawyer, who's the reported lawyer, be diverted to a, 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 an alcohol abuse program. And there are no consequences for reporting it in that context rather than failing to report. Don't forget that the rule says it is actually a disciplinary violation on the part of the lawyer who knows about this and fails to report it. So this is an exception to that. That would be an exception to the rule that, that would otherwise constitute discipline in and of itself for failing to report. By the way, there are very few reported cases of lawyers who have failed to report misconduct even though they know about it. But there are some? There are some, but not very many. It's, it's almost a rule that is honored in the breach, unfortunately. Maybe we could talk a little bit about these programs that you mentioned. That's a special service that's being offered to lawyers who are, who are suffering. Yes, the bar has, uh, in many jurisdictions, special committees or organizations that will provide assistance to lawyers discreetly and confidentially who are substance abusers, alcohol abusers, people with potential mental health problems, other kinds of problems which interfere with their, their practice so that the lawyers can get back on their feet. These are volunteer organizations in many instances, uh, and they're available to help the profession avoid the harms that could otherwise occur to the public if they weren't um, treated. And reaching out to that type of an organization or getting information about it doesn't in and of itself uh, constitute an admission of, of some type? No, it doesn't. It, it has certain implications in terms of the fact that there may be potential violations or, or, or uh, misconduct down the road, but it's certainly a positive thing. And the people who are involved in these organizations are frequently volunteer lawyers who have themselves been through alcohol or substance abuse treatment and then want to be mentors to others, frequently younger lawyers. So frequently a lawyer who is um, reaching out to one of these organizations either voluntarily or being strongly encouraged to do so by a disciplinary authority will f will wind up with a, a monitor or a mentor who is formerly somebody in, him, in, that, in that person's shoes, which is a good thing. Because they've been through it. Because they've been through it and because they're very committed to helping because they want to help. They want to make up for, you know, perhaps things that happen to them. As a lawyer, it's with alcohol and with substances, as you mentioned, there's often ample opportunity to drink or opportunity to, uh, to feel a lot of stress and, and want some type of release of that. It's good to know that there's some availability of programs to help lawyers with those problems. If it becomes that serious and severe, yes, there are programs that can help people and help lawyers. Uh, and uh, many lawyers do make use of those programs. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast. <laughs>